This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up, do you think you know what you're made of? We learn about the history of the stuff that we are built from. Atoms, where they all come from, and how we use them. Now, earlier this week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced plans to block diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, as well as critical race theory at Florida state colleges. We are also going to eliminate all DEI and CRT bureaucracies in the state of Florida. No funding, and that will wither on the vine. And I think that that's very important because it really serves as an ideological filter, a political filter. That follows Governor DeSantis' announcement that the state will prohibit public schools from participating in a pilot program for a new advanced placement course on African-American studies. Yesterday, the College Board, which created that AP course, released its official curriculum. It no longer includes some of the material that the Florida government had opposed. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you looked into this AP class on African-American studies? Uh, what do you think about the material there? What questions do you have about what is and isn't there? Do you want to see schools participate in it? How about diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at schools and colleges? Uh, have you encountered one? What do you think? Call 800 642 1234. That's 800 642 1234 or email ideas at wpr.org. Robert Smith is the Harry G. John Professor of History and Director of the Center for Urban Research, Teaching and Outreach at Marquette University. Rob, welcome back to Central Time. Glad to be back. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Now, last time we talked, we looked at this uh, African American Studies AP program that it rolled out. Can you remind us, uh, big picture, what kind of things are included there? Well, you know, it's it's classic college level material. It takes students through uh, early African history, West Africa as a significant focus in that process, moves students into the era of enslavement and resistance, and then brings students into conversations about Black freedom struggles, struggles for racial equality, the movements that were central to those conversations. It gets us into uh, the experiences of artists and activists in all kinds of ways. So it's it's classic college-level material. And how this is an advanced placement class is something not everybody's going to take. What kind of level of engagement with these ideas would we expect in an AP class? It's The idea is, right, it's it's like you're in a college class. Absolutely. And I think first and foremost, it's document-based. So it's encouraging students to not only develop skills, but to develop their critical thinking and to think about ways to inject other narratives, other ideas, important concepts into that historical discourse that oftentimes is, is left out. So now we have the decision uh, from the Florida government and Governor DeSantis uh, saying, nope, not in our schools here. I want to give a listen to some of what he had to say in announcing that. Sure. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory. That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. Now, the College Board has announced some changes uh, that they say have been in the works for a while based on their early pilots. Some of the stuff that uh, the Florida governor is pointing to as controversial have to do with modern day uh, issues and theory. What do you think about the objections there? Well, you know, it's interesting that the argument to exclude uh, these components uh, are based on notions of political agendas when this is clearly a political agenda 
of extreme proportions. And so the, in so many ways, this is reflective of why it's important for uh, students, particularly college level students, college level thinkers, to engage ideas such as this so that we can see how history echoes and so that uh, young people can understand that when we think about issues associated with inequality, there are historical trajectories that get replayed over and over. Are you surprised that there have been object, uh, objections to the AP course? Uh, it seems like any mention of race and education, uh, somebody's going to bring this up as an issue. You know, I'm, I'm not surprised about it at all. However, what what is surprising is that the, the, the arguments and the ideas actually inform why it's important for us to investigate these very issues. Uh, you know, the, the, the question around intersectionality, abolishing prisons, uh, these are very important conversations because they're very relevant today. It, it speaks to issues of identity, that, that we are more complicated individuals and therefore history needs to be more complicated in order to inject more of those narratives and more of those, those voices into the historical discourse. Uh, you know, if we talk, you, you mentioned abolishing prisons, we know that this has become a human rights issue of significant proportions. And so the, the, the idea that studying these kinds of ideas and studying these concepts is somehow connected to a political agenda is in many ways, not only wrong and false, is absurd. Uh, because we 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 have to have young people engaged in the questions of the day so that the past makes more sense. The concern, I think, uh, from the Florida governor and others is that, OK, oh, abolishing prisons, this is some, this is going to end up being indoctrination in a way. How would you how would you handle that concept or ha- to suggest educators handle dealing with those concepts in a way that doesn't, you know, I guess, try to indoctrinate or make the case for something? But have people engage with the ideas, even if they ultimately agree or disagree with them? Well, if we if we start at the notion that it's indoctrination, uh, that, that sets a very uh, false set of ideas that then teachers have to respond to. Uh, indoctrination is uh, an inaccurate way of thinking about what educators do in the classroom. Educators are providing the environment for young brains to develop and think critically. And so we we, we are called upon in the classroom to raise topics that are difficult, raise topics that are complicated, but most importantly, give students the skills and the resources to think through these questions effectively. Talking to Rob Smith from Marquette University, professor of history there and director of the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach, looking at race and education in schools and colleges and the politics surrounding those issues after an AP uh, class and test on African-American studies uh, blocked, at least for now, in Florida public schools, you can join in at 800-642-1234. Have these or related issues come up in your community, your local school district, whether you're a community member, student, teacher, parent, or staff, love to hear from you, your perspective, Did the politics get heated? Were you able to talk about these things in a civil way? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org with your thoughts or your questions. Now, turning to another uh, part of our conversation here, Rob, uh, 
critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, Governor DeSantis, again, this is in Florida, says he's banning those from uh, public colleges, cutting the bureaucracy related to those. Let's untangle those, first of all, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. They can mean different things in different places. What do they usually look like in higher education, though? Well, in higher education, there are any number of uh, onboarding HR-related sessions where you, you you learn appropriate workplace behavior, you understand and learn uh, the values that an institution carries and what your responsibilities are as, a, as an employee in that institution. Many institutions have expressed commitments to DEI-related um, values and practices, and so employees have to learn what is expected of them in the workplace and how to create a more inclusive workplace. This is uh, hardly a political agenda. It's about making your workplace healthier for everyone who's a part of it. So what do you think of, uh, I guess, this backlash against DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at schools? Well, the, the, the backlash is the political agenda, to be perfectly honest. The backlash uh, is indeed attacking uh, a set of mechanisms that are intended to make workplaces, uh, workplace environments, we could even extend it more broadly to, you know, society to make our society healthier, make our society more welcoming, uh, make sure that folks find themselves and see themselves as valued members of institutions and communities. Uh, you know, if, if we're not approaching with uh, serious rigor and commitment, these fundamental notions of inclusions, then we, we are uh, allowing for these institutions and these workplaces to be to remain hostile and to be, uh, you know, hostile to folks who oftentimes are uh, marginalized in all kinds of ways that we don't always know and we don't always understand. And so we have to continue to learn and educate those who, who we work with, learn and educate for ourselves so that we can be better about, you know, the jobs that we do and then also to, to live and breathe those values appropriately and honestly. Rob Smith is with us, professor of history and director of the Center for Urban Research, teaching and outreach at Marquette University. We're looking at issues of race and education, including an advanced placement class at African-American studies currently blocked in at least one state. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you support uh, the Florida governor blocking this uh, African-American studies AP class, at least in Florida public schools? Do you want to know more about this program? Did you take a class at some point in your life that uh, you thought really did uh, inform you a lot about uh, issues of race and its history here in the United States? Call it at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation. Maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk now with Rob Smith, history professor, director of the Center for Urban Research, Teaching and Outreach at Marquette University, looking at recent decisions by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to ban a new pilot AP course on African-American studies in public high schools there and to block diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at state colleges. You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 with your thoughts on this. If you've seen similar debates, maybe in your own community, your own school district, what's going on there. If you teach, do you feel like your shoulders being looked over a little bit on these issues? Call 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Celia is with us in Madison. Celia, hi. 
Hi, how are you doing? Good. What did you want to tell um, us about? Well, first of all, I took a an African-American studies course uh, at the students' urgings, and uh, I think it was probably 1968 at the UW here in Madison, and it was very good. Um, but I'm a Civil War historian, and this is about power. Uh, it's about uh, economic power of white aristocrats who were mainly brought to Virginia by lo- the royal governor during the English Civil Wars. And they always owned the most slaves. At the same time, New England, and uh, mostly New England, uh, had a a law case uh, in uh, in which John Hancock and the boys sued a Phyllis Wheatley, a slave, for coming out with a book of poetry, which they said was a fraud. But But she won the case. She opened the door for emancipation before the revolution in all of New England. 10 to 15 percent of the Revolutionary Army were blacks. By 1846, there were anti-slavery societies in Illinois, thanks to the railroad and white financing of anti-slavery movements by the Tappan brothers all over the United States. So, yeah, thanks for calling in. Rob, Celia, uh, try to hit some, I think, uh, often unremembered uh, pieces of history there. Yeah, you know, that was a very useful example because it emphasizes the value of the AP course. So what we just heard included commentary about this nation's legal history, the nation's stain of slavery, the importance of the voice of a black woman who's one of the most brilliant poets in American history. It also engages the question of some of our noted so-called founding fathers. All of this is wrapped into a conversation about an Afro-American studies course. So anyone who thinks that this type of study is not fully inclusive or is running the political agenda need only take listen to this last commentary. Look at what we're able to unbraid just from this one anecdote. And that is exactly why this course is valuable because it allows us to peer into history, take what we've learned, add more of what we're learning about history because the more we learn about history, the more history changes and then also make some assessments and connections to today. That's a perfect example of why our young people need to hear these kinds of stories, read these kinds of documents, explore this kind of history and this kind of literature in an interdisciplinary fashion and come to some understanding of this nation's history. Thank you very much for that anecdote. Thanks for calling in. Heidi joins us next in Martin. Heidi, hi. Hi there. How are you? Good. What did you want to bring up? Well, I want to bring up that I think the governor needs to take these courses and maybe many of our politicians (laughs) should be required to take these courses before they take office so that they aren't leading our nation with ignorance. I'm a Milwaukee public school teacher, and to hear comments like that is just, it's ignorant. And that's the problem in our country. We don't have acceptance, and we have so much ignorance. And when you lead with ignorance, you get what we're getting. Heidi, uh, thanks for the call, Rob. I actually, can I share an anecdote before we get too far? You know, uh, I had the opportunity, and and I want to send props to all the the school teachers. Thank you so very much for the work you do with our children. And you're so valued and so important. Um, You know, I had the opportunity to work with a fourth grade class. 
And my my goal that day, I, I said I was going to come in and you, the fourth graders could ask me any question about history. This fourth grader, I won't say her full name. Her last name was Robinson, Miss Robinson. She said, Dr. Rob, this was the this was the first question I received. She said, Dr. Rob, I said, yes, Miss Robinson. She said, I have two comments and a question. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> she said, my first question is the the flag stands for freedom, justice, and liberty, right? Emphasis on the right. I said, of course, Miss Robinson. She said, Dr. Rob, uh, now we had slavery at the same time we had the flag, right? I said, okay. And she said, my question is, how could we possibly have the flag at the same time that we have slavery? This from a fourth grader. And I share that anecdote because it's teachers who are called upon to answer those questions for those young minds, or at least to give them the tools to ask the right questions so that they can get to the right answers. And that fourth grader, those comments and those questions sit at the nexus of this nation's challenges and problems with racism. And that fourth grader understood that. And that fourth grader deserved to have a classroom <clears throat> where she could explore the questions that were gnawing at her. We owe that to our children and we owe it to our teachers to give them to room, the room to do their jobs. That's my anecdote. That's my story. Thanks for that call. Will joins us now in Oconomowoc. Will, hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good. What did you want to bring up, Will? Um, I just want to point out that I, I think Dr. Smith is being dishonest when he's claiming that um, only the right-wing attacks on education recently are politically motivated because the DEI initiatives and things like the 1619 Project have only really cropped up since the massive George Floyd protests in 2020 and, you know, like over the larger movement in the tens. And they are a political movement. All of that inclusion in our education system is political. And so to claim that what the right is doing is the only political thing that is happening, I think it's manufacturing consent and just being dishonest and fooling people. Well, thanks for the call. A political agenda, uh, whether you like the politics of it or not, Rob, in diverse, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Uh, you, you know, the, the notion that creating a, a more equi equitable workplace is a polit political agenda is, is false. I'm not being disingenuous or uh, advancing a political agenda for wanting to make sure that the folks I work with are working in a place that is health healthy and welcoming to who they are as individuals, no matter what their identities are. That is about making sure we live up to the creed of our nation and the creed and vision and mission of so many of our institutions. The institutions that are approaching these DEI initiatives are doing this on their own accord. In some cases, there might be requirements here or there, but these are institutions that are working toward a particular outcome that they think is best for the institution so that their employees can work in a healthy environment. That's for everyone involved. That does not exclude anyone. We're simply a part of a moment where more and more people are demanding that we have a more inclusive set of institutions. To resist that through the policymaking process is where the political agenda comes in, in my estimations. 
Well, thanks for the call. Rob, I want to bring things back around now to the AP class. Are these things evolve over time based on early piloting? There have been some changes. What kind of things are you watching for next as uh, it continues to be rolled out and tested and uh, expanded into more schools? Well, again, this is continually being revised. The uh, course is being constructed by educators of multiple levels, of multiple experiences. Uh, so we do have to wait to see what the final course will look like. Obviously, there are going to be revisions for all kinds of reasons. But the the pressure to alter this curriculum in any kind of way from policymakers denies teachers the full breadth of their experiences to make sure that the course functions the way it's supposed to for the students who they know better than anyone else, the the students who they know fully what they're capable of. Politicians don't know that. Only teachers and educators know that. That's just the truth. In just our last minute or so, uh, are you concerned that uh, more states might move uh, to block this AP class? Uh, you know, we have to always be concerned when we get into uh, this question of, of restricting ideas and silencing ideas. That is dangerous. It's hostile. And unfortunately, we have a, a, a history of that happening not only here in this country, but in other countries. So we do have to be concerned about that. Uh, the, the the extent to which states of, of any significant number approach this, we'll, we'll have to see. We, we have to be concerned about it because we know that that is indeed a possibility. Rob, we'll leave it there. Equal- oh, we're all out of time. Thanks again for joining okay. us today, Rob. Thank you. That's Robert Smith, professor of history and director of the Center for Urban Research, teaching and outreach at Marquette University. He joined us today to look at Florida's ban on a pilot advanced placement African-American studies course and the Florida governor's plan to block diversity, equity and inclusion programs at Florida state colleges. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer Kent, organic farming is a big deal here in Wisconsin and some new USDA organic labeling guidelines could have a big impact. Find out why, what kind of changes are in the works, and if you are someone who uh, consumes organic products or produces them, definitely want to hear from you. You can get started right now with an email at ideas at WPR.org. Then join the conversation tomorrow, tomorrow morning at 730 here on the Ideas Network. If you're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network, I'm Rob Barrett. Coming up today at 6 on 1A+, what happens when we appeal a claim that our insurance company has rejected? Today, 1A looks at new reporting on a process that's tricky and far from transparent. That's coming up today at 6. Now, think about the saying, find out what you're made of. Usually that's about character, values, toughness, more than, you know, the nuts and bolts of the human body. But what was the last time you actually got curious about what we are actually made of? Not just the hair and skin and organs and stuff, but the small stuff, the atoms. How about how the food we eat becomes us? In his new book, our next guest tackles these and other ultimate questions of life, the universe, and everything. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Are these things you are curious about or were you as a kid? Do you have a question about what we're made of? What we're not made of, how we got to be what we are. Our next guest goes back to the Big Bang 
to start things off. You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Dan Levitt writes and produces science and history documentaries. His new book is called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. Dan, welcome to Central Time. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. I got to ask about the journey here, because if I thought of some of the starting questions you did, I might, you know, go online for a couple few minutes and then be done with it. Instead, you literally go from Big Bang to how we, you know, how our cells turn food into energy, plus the science behind it. What kicked off this journey? You know, it started with a question. When my teenage daughter was thinking of becoming a vegetarian, I naturally wanted to was wondering what she would have to eat in order to remain healthy. And when I started thinking about it, I actually realized I have no idea what our bodies were made of. And a little <laughs> bit more thinking, and I realized I actually don't even know where that stuff, whatever it was, came from. And then it kind of hit me, which was, wow, everything that's in our bodies now, every single particle actually started 13.8 billion years ago at the Big Bang. And so that kicked off uh, a whole lot of, of of Googling and questioning. And, you know, what I discovered is not just that it's an amazing journey from there to here, but also the fact that we are made of particles from the Big Bang and we can actually reconstruct that journey and look back and figure out how we got here. That's also just amazing. So how scientists discovered it also was something that just just absolutely fascinated me. I'm going to I'm going to go to some of the things that fascinated me that I learned in your book. So you mentioned some of our material or all of it originated 13.8 billion years ago. The bits of us that are hydrogen, which is a fair amount of us, that's the original material. Those are the same atoms as when the universe started. That's it. And that's 10% of your body. Uh, but all the other atoms, which are different elements like oxygen and carbon and so on, they, they their constituents, the electrons and the protons that they're made of, also came right out of the Big Bang. But they needed a little work, right? So those bigger atoms, the carbons and things like that, how did they end up existing in the universe, first of all, much less being part of us? Yeah, so... Once the Big Bang happened, there was a huge amount of oxygen that went out in massive clouds into the expanding universe. A large uh, collections of those condensed into stars. And once that hydrogen was 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 at higher and higher press pressures, which gravity contracted into in, into this higher and higher pressures and temperatures, it fused helium, and that liberated energy. And that and when it liberated energy and the star got hotter, then it was able to make heavier elements with more protons in the nucleus. Every element in our uh, every element has an additional proton compared to the one before it on the periodic table. So uh, as stars created uh, heavier elements and it released more energy, that allowed the stars to make even heavier elements. Uh, until the iron, un, until the element iron, which has forty protons in its uh, nucleus, after that, the rest of the elements in the universe and in our body uh, were made by the most powerful explosions in the universe, which are, uh, or some of them, which were supernovas, the <laughs> massive explosions of stars. Okay, and that's all amazing. But then here's the really baffling thing to me: most of me is nothing. There's gaps uh, among the atoms, the molecules between them. There's more nothing than something in a human body. 
yeah, that's from I I really have a hard time Whoa. getting my head around it as well. <laughs> but uh, if you look at an atom, like just a hydrogen atom, ninety nine percent of it is ex is empty space. So if you took the nucleus and you blew it up so that it was the size of a tennis ball, the electrons are worrying, worrying, I'm sorry, wor <laughs> worrying uh, a mile away. Uh, so uh, there's a huge amount of empty space with, within our body, so much so that the, some of the tiniest uh, uh, particles that we know of like, called neutrinos, they can just shoot right through us. We are talking about what we're made of with author Dan Levitt. His new book is What's Gotten Into You, the Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang through Last Night's Dinner. You can join in with your questions, your experiences in studying these things, maybe at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Jeff is with us in Superior. Hey, Jeff. Hi. This is a good topic. It's something I've internalized. I've read recently that men, male Americans at least, uh, part of a research study, are deficient in magnesium. And I, I read that the magnesium um, chemical or nutrient uh, affects how our body, um, want to say, um, how the synergy of the energy affects, that magnesium affects the relationship between the atoms in our body and the deficiency um, is, is a negative thing and we need to in, eat more magnesium. Is that is that enough of a question i mean jeff, I, well jeff i got you if you don't mind jeff i'm going to take us on a detour into the 19th century dan where scientists were really tackling questions of what do we need to eat <laughs> what happens if we eat these things what happens if we don't eat these other things can you talk about the quest to to narrow that down yeah well that's a, that's fun because uh you know in the 19th century we didn't know that we do need some minerals like magnesium. And you might wonder how they ever figured it out. <laughs> and the, the way they figured it out, one way they figured it out was they knew that our food has proteins, fats, carbohydrates in them. And uh, so they made artificial food with, with those constituents and fed them to animals like, like laboratory rats. And they discovered that they got sick. And so by a process of deduction, they were able to figure out that, oops, you know, we actually need, we need chlorine, we need magnesium, we need potassium, we need sulfur. There, there are certain mineral and iron we need, we need to, uh, that we have to get from plants in addition to the other things that we already knew about. Jeff, thanks for the call. Another component we need, and I want to go to this one because a lot of these were discovered at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, vitamins. And I want to get it. You you share the story of scurvy, which I thought I knew, right? Sailors got scurvy. They didn't eat uh, oranges. They didn't get enough vitamin C in their diet. Easy peasy. Except people figured this out and then forgot about it again and again. Can you talk about why it was so hard to connect the dots between this horrific condition that killed thousands of sailors and just eating some oranges. Yeah, it's baffling when you look at, at the face of it. Um, scurvy is a terrible disease and the British Navy suffered dreadfully from it. Uh, and there was a while, there was a while when, when ship's captains knew that if they had fresh vegetables and particularly if they had lemons or oranges uh, and fed them to their sailors, they wouldn't suffer from it. But I think people got very uh, complacent about it. 
And the, the thing that was the real killer was at the time, no one had the concept of a vitamin. A vitamin is a weird thing. You know that if you eat something, you'll get sick from it. But who would think that if you don't eat a tiny bit of something that you've never heard of, that'll also make you sick? And at the time, their theories of disease were about the, the were really the Greek theories of the humors that that all the diseases they thought were were created by um, by these four humors in the body that were in imbalance. And so they didn't have the concept of a vitamin. Uh, and so it took a long, long time for them for for um, for scientists to even get that idea in their heads. And um, in the meantime, the millions and millions of of British sailors, uh, among many, many other people, uh, died from it. Let's go back to our callers at 800-642-1234. Michael is with us in Appleton. Michael, hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, so this is a bit of a tangent, and I apologize in advance. Uh, but I, I read a lot of Terry Pratchett's novels, and in a couple of the Discworld books, um, he includes a little a little song that, knowing Terry, I'm not sure how much of it is, you know, taken from actual old songs and how much uh, of it is him. But uh, it's iron enough to make a nail, lime enough to paint a wall, water enough to drown a dog. And it goes on like that for a little bit. Uh, and it's just talking about all the things that it takes to... Uh, make a man uh and i just thought it's kind of interesting that you know you go back uh all these hundreds if not thousands of years and people have you tried to figure out like okay but what makes us alive <laughs> uh, I, I gotcha michael thanks a lot you you kind of break down how much of product uh, element x it takes to to make a human as that song tried to do dan yeah i love that so if you weigh 150 pounds you have a, a carbon enough to make 25 pounds of charcoal. You've got enough salt in your body to fill a salt shaker. You have enough chlorine to disinfect a couple backyard swimming pools and enough iron. Your caller was exactly right to make a three inch nail. <laughs> and furthermore, he was right because your body is over 50% uh, water. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, we're talking to science and history documentarian Dan Levitt about his new book. It's called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang through Last Night's Dinner. You can join in at 800-642-1234. you have a question for our guest about anything we've been talking about, about his journey to learn the history of the stuff we're made of, the atoms and molecules and nutrients and how they get there, you could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up the conversation with Dan Levitt about his new book. It's called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. You can join in with your questions at 800-642-1234. Dan, before we go back and back to our callers, a big part of your book is about the scientists who made the discoveries you're looking at and the workings of science. And an amazing theme seems to be scientists proposes idea Everybody dismisses it as ridiculous, but then some of them say, okay, I'm going to try to disprove it. And they can't disprove it, and it becomes accepted science. What did you learn just about the way scientific progress works? You know, I always thought that uh, that science is just follow the evidence. But when I was researching all of these amazing discoveries 
I discovered that at the time that they were first presented, so many of them, the vast preponderance of them that I looked at in my book were just completely dismissed when they were initially presented or the scientists treated them with complete scorn. And, um, you know, so I discovered that um, there were six particular reasons uh, that made whole communities of scientists very skeptical of radical new discoveries, not incremental ones, but radical ones. Uh, you know, one of them, I call, I, I gave them nicknames, right? One of them is the too weird to be true bias. <laughs> when scientists were first proposed that the universe was not static, but was expanding, I mean, huh? No way, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's it's crazy. Uh, or, um, you know, when uh, when scientists first proposed that organic molecules, which are the molecules that our bodies are made of, which are not rock, but they are, they are longer chains of molecules, molecules could exist in space, people were completely skeptical. Um, so, uh, and, th and then often people um, had faith in the world's greatest experts and didn't always examine really carefully the assumptions that those experts made. And so, you know, I learned that uh, these kinds of cognitive biases uh, in the short term, not in the long term, but in the short term, can really, really retard science because scientists, they're just not very different from any of us. Uh, we all have unconscious assumptions that often we don't bring to the fore. And when we do, sometimes we're just wrong. Let's go back to our callers now. Chet is with us in McQuanago. Chet, hi. Hello, it's Chet. Yeah, nice to hear from you. I um. I'm totally relating to what you're saying about the everything you eat makes you. I, I teach a botany class to a bunch of fifth graders, and, and I'll start the day saying, first I'll say, uh, my, the th I'll show my thumbnail. So you see this thumbnail? That's a pork chop I had about a week ago. <laughs> you know. And But the, the funnest thing I like to do, and I think this relates to what you're saying, um, is I, I'd like to start the class off also with a question. I would say, I would ask them, uh, or tell them, I said, well, everything you eat comes from the soil. And they would often argue with me, um, you know, no, what if you were raised in a cannibal family or what about fish and all this other stuff they would ask me. But the, thing, the thought that everything you eat comes from the soil, was it seemed kind of radical too, but it always ends up there. And then the, and, and it ends, always seems to end with us saying, well, who makes the soil for us, you know? And it's the trees, and that's how I get into the botany end of it. But uh, the, the trees and the plants make soil for us, so we can grow food so that we can make fingernails. Does that Chet, make sense? Yeah. Def, Chet, thanks a lot for the call. And Dan, you spend some time on, on photosynthesis and the, the mystery of how plants convert energy from the, or was a mystery of how plants convert energy from a sun to the sun. And that uh, does all the things that Chet just said. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we really are creatures of plants and it all goes back to photosynthesis. You know, when I was in school, I probably learned about photosynthesis, but I paid it no mind. Now I think it's the most amazing reaction ever in the world. Uh, it was invented by bacteria several billion years ago. Now, it's, of course, it's in plants. And, uh, and here's what it is. You take carbon dioxide from the air, you take hydrogen from water, and you take energy from the sun, and you make sugar out of it. And then then from that sugar, you can make other organic compounds. So this is one of the, mind, one of the many mind-blowing things that I, I learned in the book is that 
uh, 93% of your mass actually comes from photosynthesis. 83% of your mass was once just carbon dioxide floating in the air and another 10% was hydrogen that was in the water. So, you know, we really are um, uh, completely products in a, in a sense of both plants and photosynthesis. Thanks for that call, Chet. We're talking to Dan Levitt about his new book, What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang through Last Night's Dinner. Staying with the mind-blowing theme, Dan, part of that process uh, that took a while to figure out also was how cells convert stuff to energy uh, and just the the sheer rate of what's going on, the chemical reactions in a cell. Uh, Can you give us a sense of of the scale, how quickly our cells are, are creating energy for us? So there's a little, there's an energy currency in our cells called ATP, and your average cell consumes and therefore has to remake 10 to 100 million of them every single second. And the way it does that is unbelievable. This was another incredible thing that I learned, which is they're actually, it's done in a a little chemical factory in your cell called a mitochondria. The mitochondria has little electric currents inside made not of electrons, but of protons. Again, protons from the Big Bang. And those protons drive these nanomachines, these unbelievable nanomachines called ATP synthase. They're, they're, and why I call them machines is that they've got a rotor that spins at, at up to 300 <laughs> uh, revolutions per second. And then there's another piece that that creates the ATP, and it's connected, interlinked to another piece that kicks the ATP off into the cell. It's an it's a very beautiful, sophisticated machine, and it kind of looks almost waterwheelish, like something that Leonardo da Vinci would create. And that creates all of the energy in your body. Fun thing about that is, if you were to take all the mitochondria in your body that create your energy and lay them out flat, they would cover two basketball courts there are that many of them wow and they create as much energy in your body as uh, as a hundred watt light bulb in the book you tackle a lot of answered questions things that uh, we figured out well we people smarter than me figured out over the decades what to you are a couple of the biggest still unanswered questions about what makes us what and who we are well the origin of life is a topic, uh, is a subject that we have a lot of very good theories about, but that one, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. How exactly did the first cell form? And then the big one that I don't tackle in my book is consciousness. You know, I do talk a lot about how the molecules in our cells, 100 trillion molecules in each of our 30 trillion cells creates life. And we know a tremendous amount about that. But then how all the nerve cells in our brain create consciousness, that's still one of the biggest mysteries in science. Having gone through this process and written this book, do you look at your food differently now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, you know, there, there's a, a, a wonderful quote that one scientist said is when, when I see people walking down the street, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, I see plants rearranged. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you feel different as a human being, this, uh, as a holder of these 13 billion year old atoms? You know, I do, because um, 
you know, I learned that even the simplest cell is unbelievably complex and worthy of respect. And we are made of 30 trillion cells. Uh, uh, you know, I mentioned that each one has 100 trillion atoms. If you were to, if they were each the width, uh, the thickness of a dollar bill, and you would stack them up, they would go up to the moon and back like oh, almost 30 times. <laughs> and um, so it's almost impossible for us to appreciate how truly sophisticated we are. Our cells are filled with all kinds of unbelievable sophisticated mechanisms that were built by, again, from particles that came down to Earth willy-nilly, ultimately from the Big Bang. And we'll leave it there. Thanks to our guest, Dan Levitt. He's a documentarian who produces films about science and history. We talked to him about his new book. It's called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. Tomorrow, what you eat, uh, Food Friday, we'll talk about some of the healthiest foods on the planet. That's tomorrow here on Central Time.